Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. If you're looking for an easy way to keep advancing your career, your skills, and your opportunities, consider becoming an Adweek Pro member. As an Adweek Pro member, you'll get unlimited access to Adweek content. You'll also be invited to member-only events, classes, and networking opportunities. Your employer might even cover the cost of your membership. Visit adweek.com slash subscribe to learn about our current special rate for new Adweek Pro members. That's adweek.com slash subscribe. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor for Adweek. And we've got a uh, special group uh, this week to talk about one of the most high-profile stories of the last week, uh, which there were several, and I'm sure we will touch on uh, quite a few of those. We're going to be primarily talking about uh, President Trump's uh, kind of escalating war with Twitter, uh, part of a long-running uh, you know, d- debate, uh, I-, I guess to put it nicely, that the White House has had about social media and how it could or should regulate uh, the balance of political views uh, across those networks. It's been going on for quite a while. And this often spills over into uh, Trump's ongoing uh, it, very much war with uh, the mainstream media. Uh, which he has often called the enemy of the people. And so to talk about uh, some of the issues that all really came to a head over this past week, uh, we've got several of Adweek's uh, top experts on these topics. Uh, first up, we've got uh, Jess Ferris, who is Adweek's audience engagement editor uh, and oversees our social media and our social strategy. Uh, Jess, thanks, thanks so much for making time for us this week. Nice to be here. We've also got Scott Nover, uh, who covers platforms, uh, including Twitter and Facebook and several others that we'll be talking about uh, for Adweek. Scott, thanks so much for joining. Thanks, David. Glad to be here. And we've got AJ Katz, uh, editor for our TV Newser uh, blog, which covers the TV news industry, and AJ covers that uh, as well for the um, for the rest of Adweek, and pretty much knows more about TV news than uh, than everyone else I know put together. AJ, uh, <laughs> so honored you'd make time for us. Nice to be here, David. Thank you. Scott, why don't you start by catching us up on what happened last week uh, and kind of the the opening salvos in in what quickly turned into a very, very high profile feud between uh, the president and Twitter? Well, that is a very broad question um, because there was a lot that went on between Trump and Twitter, and it took a lot of different turns over the course of the hours and days uh, since Tuesday, really. Um, but basically where it all started was um, with a series of baseless allegations that the president made against MSNBC host and former Congressman Joe Scarborough, uh, who hosts Morning Joe, um, and, and said that he had murdered 
um, a former staffer of his. Um, and there was a lot of outrage on Twitter about this. And a lot of people, including the widower of the, the, the person he allegedly did not murder, um, calling on Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, to basically take down these, um, these defamatory tweets that the president made um, because they could... Um, Cause a lot of damage and, and pain to uh, to the family and to um, to Mr. Scarborough as well, um, and it's kind of started there. Um, what happened next was a little bit odd because as pressure mounted all day for for Jack Dorsey to do something, he actually did something completely different. And what he did at the end of the day was um, lay put labels on two of. Donald Trump's tweets that had to do with mail-in ballots. Yeah, not, um, not murder. <laughs> not allegations, yeah. allegations of murder. Mail-in ballots. So, nothing to do with the Scarborough thing. So if you were confused about kind of how we got from Joe Scarborough to mail-in ballots, um, and we've gotten to a number of different places since then, um, I can't blame you. It was very confusing. Um, there was a little bit of misdirection there. Um, so they did eventually put labels on these tweets about mail-in ballots, which was the first time that Twitter has actually modified in any form a Trump tweet. And they didn't actually change that tweet. They just kind of added in a flag next to it that said, if you want more information, this is potentially misleading. And if you want more information about mail-in ballots, go to this link, basically. Um, Trump did not take kindly to that. And uh, Trump lashed out against Twitter, uh, said that his free speech was being being, uh, harmed on the platform. Um, Of course, he doesn't have any sort of free speech on this platform as it's a private company, uh, Twitter. And um, that kind of all started there on Tuesday. And from there, Trump was trying to kind of devise how to get back at Twitter. And it took a few different turns. Yeah, so so let's uh, let, let's uh, talk about that. You know, I remember he, he kind of ended one of those nights. Was it Tuesday? All these days run together now. But he ended one of those days talking about uh, like warning of an executive order to come, right? Like this ominous uh, warning. And then the next day, uh, what what did he actually announce? So that's a good question. So that kind of takes us to the next phase of this saga. Um, the executive order, while he was upset about kind of tr- um, Twitter allegedly, quote unquote, censoring his speech, Um, It had to do with something called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is a little bit of a wonky subsection of of legalese that is mostly just familiar to law experts and and kind of policy wonks in in Washington, D.C. And so what Section 230 is, is kind of this foundational um, provision in the law that says that online platforms are not legally liable for the things that third parties or, or users, if you're talking about user-generated content, um, the platforms are not liable for thing, for most things that are posted by, um, by third parties on their platforms. And it's kind of this uh, liability protection that has shielded a lot of these tech companies and, um, and, and websites uh, for 25 years almost. Uh, it was passed in 1996 as part of the Communications Decency Act. Um, and so Trump's executive order kind of addresses that, um, though he doesn't really have the authority to change these provisions and make them liable for, for that speech. So basically, if they if that law went away, these tech companies would be liable for all of 
for anything that is posted there, and they could be opened up for lots of different lawsuits about, you know, defamation and, and, and um, you know, encouraging violence or something like that. Yeah, and, and I'd be curious, Jess, to get your thoughts on this, because as someone like you who's been working in social media for a long time, I've always known that that this is one of the basic tenets of these platforms, right? That that they are not liable for the for the gross and weird and potentially dangerous stuff people put on there. And and it seems like this has been one of the reasons they've been notoriously slow uh, to control that content and because it, they they've rarely wanted to paint this this image that if we you know, if we control some of it, we have to control all of it, or we'll be implying that we have some liability in terms of what goes on there. But I, I wasn't actually, I don't know about you, Jess, I wasn't actually aware of this specific uh, part of the law. I wasn't until I uh, read Scott's story, but it's that's an interesting point. Twitter has historically been very quiet about this in the past. You know, um, Scott and I were talking earlier, and he mentioned that, you know, Trump's threatened nuclear war via Twitter. He has spread misinformation about tariffs on Chinese imports. He's um, spread information about Puerto Rico. So, um, you know, this this hasn't been something that Twitter has directly responded to in the past, um, but clearly we've reached a turning point. Um, and it's interesting, too, in light of what Facebook has been dealing with after years of controversy over Facebook's persistent refusal and perhaps inability to fact check or mark political ads and fake news as something that people should be aware of. Um, Zuckerberg has basically thrown up his hands and said it's on users um, to figure this out for themselves, which seems a convenient conclusion considering that his platform has tried and abjectly failed at it. Um, so for Twitter, it raises a lot of questions. You know, is this just world leaders? Is there, um, you know, if a mayor or a sheriff were to tweet something similar, would Twitter be required to monitor it? Would they require users to flag it? Um, and I'm sure the folks at Twitter have had these t discussions internally, but I doubt the answer is clear. Um, we also see the same issues on Reddit, which especially in the past years before it became more brand friendly has been historically very hands off about removing content or flagging it if it was false. Um, they left it up to individual subreddit moderators and users to decide what was acceptable. And as a result, some truly horrific subreddits advocating violence and abuse were allowed to persist for years before the overall user base pushed them uh, to shut those down. And some of those, I would note, were related to or created in support of Donald Trump. So um, I'll be really interested to see what precedent and rules um, Twitter sets around this and what they continue to do in the future. So, so Scott, uh, you know, Trump started, and he has since tweeted, I think, repeal section 230, right? I think it was one of his tweets. Can he, this is a pretty simple question. Can he do that? No, he cannot. That's <laughs> the simple answer. And so I think like, I think it's important for everyone to realize that there's a lot of things that Trump is saying that he wants to do or can do, and he cannot. Um, the government cannot um, cannot intervene in um, cannot make rules based on you know individuals' uh, speech for the most part, especially political speech. There's high protections under the First Amendment and and many decades of court precedent that protect individuals from. Uh, their speech. And, and that being said, that's also extended uh, to corporations like Twitter. So um, Trump is actually in some ways threatening Twitter's free speech. Uh, so there's all these things, but, but so just put out, put, put that into perspective for a second. But with section 230, no, um, section 230 is part of 
of, of a law that was passed by Congress. So Congress has the power to do that. Um, an ex executive order, as Trump passed on Thursday, can tell the executive branch how to interpret a law. Um, that being said, there's very, very shaky ground on which any of the agencies that Trump actually uh, uh, discusses in this executive order um, have for, for the things that he's talking about, um, nor does he even have control over agencies like the FCC and the FTC, which are independent. Um, so it's all kind of a mess, and there's not that much that Donald Trump can actually do about Section 230. He's basically making a recommendation to a government department to request from the FCC um, to review the law, but it's mostly an empty threat. So, you know, just to, because we could spend the next four hours talking about everything that happened in the last week, and we still would probably barely put a dent in it, but just to kind of catch folks up, uh, although I know a lot of this was... Um, Got got plenty of news attention, um, but with the the death of George Floyd, with uh, the protests and then eventually uh, unrest and riots that that uh, occurred in Minneapolis afterward, uh, that's when uh, that became uh, <clears throat> yet another kind of tipping point in this in this conflict. Uh, when uh, Trump I issued a tweet and instead of just putting a fact checking. Uh, kind of framing around that tweet. Uh, Scott, tell us uh, how, how Twitter handled that one. Well, so basically the, um, the, the tweet from Donald Trump, at, which came at um, Classic Trump at 1230 at night, I think it was last night or earlier this morning, um, basically uh, called the mayor of Minneapolis a very weak radical left mayor. Um, and uh, threatened to he threatened to send the national guard into Minneapolis to quell the protests. He said, "Quote: These thugs are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd. I won't let that happen." Um, just spoke to Governor Tim Walz and told him the military is with him all the way. Any difficulty, and we will assume control. But when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Thank you. So, pretty instantly, people on Twitter said. This is a clear violation of Twitter rules about encouraging violence. Basically, the president was was threatening to, that the national Gu national guard should start shooting unarmed protesters um, or looters. Either way, it's it's uh, certainly a violation of the Twitter rules. If if I were to post that, or a company were to post that, or something like that, um, and by the time that at least I woke up this morning, Trump. Twitter had done something about that, so they kind of blurred out that tweet. Uh, it's hard. It's you. You know, you can click it if you say you click view on it, but it says this tweet violated Twitter rules about glorifying violence. However, Twitter has determined that it may be in the public's interest for the tweet to remain accessible. So basically, what they're saying is that under any other circumstance, if this weren't the president of the United States, we would take this tweet down um, because it violates our rules. But we're going to let you view it if you want to view it because we think it's newsworthy. And, and the, you know, a lot of people point out the historic context of this. Uh, this is a line uh, that, you know, we, we certainly don't know exactly where it came from in terms of uh, how Trump thought it up. Uh, but it was a, li a line that's quite infamous in civil rights history. It dates back to 1967 uh, when the Miami police chief, uh, Walter Headley, was was asked basically what are, you know, how far are you willing to go to keep people from 
uh, from looting. This was during you know, 1965 to 1967 was the time of uh, the Watts riots in L.A. and led, uh, and through you know riots in Detroit, uh, quite a few uh, cities. And so when asked about how far he would go, he said when the looting starts, the shooting starts, and that basically that's how he kept the peace is by uh, you know, just shooting uh, people. And it became uh, kind of one of the most, more infamous quotes in, you know, in, in the style of a George Wallace or a Bull Connor. Uh, and, and so, of course, it had a very specific interpretation. But then uh, Trump came out later and said, uh, we're recording this on Friday, came out later in the day and said, uh, no, what I meant was that when there's looting, people tend to get shot by each other. And it's bad, and I don't want people to get shot. And so he obviously walked it back. Uh, but this was a a real, you know, I don't know if I could say historic, but a, I mean, a real moment uh, for Twitter. I don't, I, I guess Scott, like, did you see a move like this? It, it feels like it kind of went from a a five intensity to a an eleven intensity, <laughs> kind of overnight. Yeah, I I was up late watching the protest, the clips from the protest. Um, just as a viewer citizen, um, they were pretty extreme and, and, and fascinating, just, um, sad and fascinating. And I tweeted kind of, um, uh, tongue in cheek. Well, I guess we won't be talking about Twitter tomorrow. And then Trump tweeted. And then I thought to myself, you know what? We might be talking about Twitter tomorrow. And here we are. It's Friday afternoon, um, almost 6 p.m., and we're still talking about Twitter because it did escalate. Um, this was more than a fact-check label. This was the first time that they had – that Twitter um, or any major social platform, to my knowledge, has basically removed or censored a, um, a Trump tweet. I think censored is probably the wrong word, but restricted the view uh, or said that – one of his tweets explicitly kind of violates the tenets of their rules. Um, so it did escalate, and uh, Trump did walk it back, but um, the the label still still is on the original tweets, and I think everyone that was on Twitter and, and can see that tweet for themselves know what, what knows what what he means, and um, and kind of the the hollow um, walk back uh, didn't really reverse what he said. Yeah, and and the you know the White House. Uh uh, Twitter feed also basically just tweeted the exact same thing, trying, I don't know if it was an end around or, or just trying to support uh, him. And that immediately got the exact same uh, treatment. Yeah. So it yeah. showed that this was not a specific thing just for that. the one real Donald Trump account. Yeah. They, the, the at white house account, it's tricky with Donald Trump. There's at, you know, at white house at POTUS at real Donald Trump, they're all official accounts. Um, but the at White House account tweeted the exact same text after the after it had been you know taken down almost or or modified and uh, and it, an hour and a half later Twitter did slap the same restriction on the White House tweet so it's been done twice to the same offending tweet and and meanwhile as I think Jess uh, mentioned or, or hinted at uh, he posted the exact same message to Facebook and to Instagram where they both were kept. Uh, Instagram obviously owned by Facebook, uh, and they, and then he also, if I remember right, Trump tweeted some, uh, some praise for Mark Zuckerberg, um, you know, that, that Facebook was handling it right. 
and so just to pause there, because another another uh, major incident uh, that happened last night in this kind of same uh, wheelhouse, I guess you could, you could say, was um, the AJ and and I, I apologize we've <laughs> been we've been leaving you out of this conversation up till now, but uh, we got plenty more to talk about. Uh, so CNN obviously was live on the scene um, in Minneapolis uh, for the police crackdown uh, after protests turned ugly, and uh, there was and uh, well tell tell us what happened live on television. Sure. So um, it wasn't just CNN. It was a variety of local and national news outlets were on the scene. Um, it was, gosh, late, late night when the protesters burnt down uh, the Minneapolis Police Department's third precinct building. And that's really when the outlets, when the coverage really ramped up a bit. Um and a CNN correspondent named Omar Jimenez, who ironically, um, he used to be at, at WBL, uh, which is a station in Baltimore. He covered uh, Freddie Gray. Um, so he was one of CNN's men on the ground for this in Minneapolis. Um, so, yeah, so um, Jimenez was um, reporting for CNN New Day, which is CNN's morning uh, three hour morning program. Um, it was at 6 a.m. He was live and all of a sudden Minneapolis um, state patrolmen started to approach him, um, wanted to know what he was doing. Um, Jimenez sort of flashed his media credential, was very calm. It was sort of aware for the hundreds of thousands of viewers who are watching New Day to see that, you know, he was being respectful. He said, you know, officers, wherever you want us, we will go. We will, you know, we were just moving away. We can go to the corner. Um, apparently that wasn't enough. And they cuffed the correspondence, um, all live and on air. CNN captured it. And, um, yeah, about an hour later, he was, um, he and his his um, his producer, Bill Kirkos, his photojournalist, Neil L., uh, Leonel Mendez, were released. And this actually um, happened with um, the assistance of CNN president, Jeff Zucker. Um, for those who are in the television news business, they're aware that Zucker um, watches all news, but CNN in particular, almost at all hours. He doesn't really sleep much. So he was obviously awake at that time. And once he saw what was happening to one of his reporters, he got on the phone with the governor of uh, the state of Minnesota, Tim Waltz, and said, what's going on? You need to take care of this now. This cannot be happening. The governor, I guess, took care of it. He apologized profusely. Um, the governor, again, apologized later in the day to CNN and to Zucker um, and to Jimenez um, for what had transpired that morning. So it was it was a pretty surreal situation. This is obviously not the first time um, journalists have been um, arrested. <laughs> You're not used to seeing it here in the United States. You're used to seeing it in different countries. Um, but it did happen here. It happened in real time, which is a little bit scary. It happened to an uh, Afro-Latino um, reporter, which is um, even more problematic. And yeah, it was just it was sort of an extraordinary situation this morning. Um, and uh, and yeah, it was really sad. So I, I and part of what I think really drew a lot of fire for this uh, was that the Minneapolis uh, State Patrol or Minnesota State Patrol 
uh, had tweeted after this happened, said, in the course of clearing the streets and restoring order at Lake Street and Snelling Avenue, four mm-hmm. people were arrested by state patrol troopers, including three members of a CNN crew. The three were released once they were confirmed to be members of the media, which, of course, the visual that that paints is that they were in the middle of you know, a scenario and, and there was no way to tell that these were media sure. professionals when it's very clear to anyone who watches that, that there is a live live shot going on in the middle of an empty street. They are the only yeah. people there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, as, as folks who are watching in real time and frankly, if you DVR or if you go back and look at the CNN video tweet uh, that's gotten, gosh, 20 some odd million views already um, since this morning, um, Omar is flashing his media credentials. He's speaking with the patrolman. Someone um, off camera says they're with CNN. So uh, he was not released immediately. You could see him getting in the patrol car. The footage is there. Um, it's unfortunate. And um, CNN's uh, communications department um, sort of made clear that the patrol uh, Twitter account was uh, spreading inaccurate information. and. Um, obviously that's not what happened. It took, it took a little while for, um, Jimenez and his producer and his photojournalist to be released. Um, you know, to the governor's credit, he apologized profusely to Jeff Zucker. Um, and then he did it in a, um, separate televised news conference. I think the governor, um, he tried to add, he added later that He's a teacher by trade and he always, you know, he says he's always been transparent with the press and with the reporters and that he failed them in this instance. So um, I think that's um, admirable, I guess, if there's anything that could be taken from that. But yes, uh, as the uh, the situation was there for everyone to see. And it's just it's really unfortunate what transpired. But it's good that he's OK and his colleagues are OK now. And, and, you know, two things. I, I should pause one and say, if I didn't mention it earlier, we're recording this on Friday evening. Um, and the way this, these, all these stories have been uh, evolving very rapidly. I realize some of this information, uh, you know, by the time this podcast is released may, may be a little dated uh, because things have been moving so very quickly. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out is, of course, uh, that there are far more serious, you know, we've been talking about uh, Trump's disagreements with Twitter uh, and about, you know, a CNN reporter being being arrested in the middle of coverage of this. There's a far more serious human toll uh, to all this. I don't want anyone to think that we're we're sitting here thinking about, but what does this mean for Twitter policy? And what does this mean for reporters? Uh, obviously, our hearts, I can say very uh, earnestly for everyone I've talked to at Adweek today. Today's been uh, a really, you know, brutal day in the last, uh, you know, the last several days have been really horrible on so many uh, of our colleagues and uh, the people in our our industries and the and the people of Minneapolis and and you know it's just I just wanted to be clear that we're not just dryly setting aside the human toll of of everything that's happening in Minneapolis. It's weighing very heavily on us, uh, but I think at the same time there it is important to take a step back and really look at there are some potentially. Uh, massive policy shaping things happening right now. Uh, and, w- and with that, and and Jess, I, I'm curious to, to start with you before we go back to Scott. What, you know, we all know that social media is, is far from perfect. And, and it's like we've spent years criticizing uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, every platform. Uh, we all do. We all do it constantly. But at the same time, when the president steps in and says, 
I demand that they make these changes in accommodation for me. It's d- did you find yourself almost like defending Twitter and feeling weird about that at all? <laughs> or is that just is that just me? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there has been um, especially today, there's been no shortage of people pointing out um the resonance or perhaps irony of a very clear First Amendment violation and um, and reporters being arrested um, while the president is railing about his free speech on a private platform that owes him no such thing. So it's been, you know, curious. I think it also um, it raises a question. Uh, David Cohen, who runs Adweek Social Pro Daily Blog, recently reported that leaders and legislators who tweet the most also get the most attention on their individual tweets and have a higher engagement rate on average, while others who tweet only occasionally sort of get lost in the internet void. Um, that's that's no fault of Twitter's necessarily. That's just how um, the algorithm works. Um, that Uh, But that means that world leaders who use Twitter essentially have a disproportionately larger megaphone. And that's about 25 percent of all leaders on Twitter who have the ability to amplify themselves more. Um, But that raises questions about, you know, uh, is tweeting what we need world leaders to be doing? Is it good or fair or equitable that those who spend more time tweeting have more global influence and not just Trump, but in general? Um, And I think that, you know, this is going to massively redefine kind of the way social media is used in the political sphere, especially after this week when it has had serious legal repercussions. And, you know, you see people um, responding to the heaviness of this morning and this week's events. So I, I guess the, the the big question now for both, the, you know, Scott and AJ um, and it is kind of what happens next. And, and I know that on, on one level, that's these days is absolutely impossible to predict. Um, but I feel like we've gotten a pretty good sense in the last few days of where Twitter's head is at, um, that they're finally willing, you know, this kind of sleeping giant is finally awakening, awakening. And uh, they, they seem like, uh, you know, and I don't know how much of this is Jack Dorsey specifically uh, deciding uh, kind of where they should come down on all this. But it feels like I, I, there was a point today on Friday where I earnestly thought they're just going to they're just going to suspend his account for 24 hours. And and I because, you know, that's like when you mess up in social media, when you say something you're not supposed to, you get the warning, you maybe get the second warning, then you get the 24 hour suspension and then you get the ban. And I was like, I feel like they're at the 24 hour suspension <laughs> mark with with Trump. What do you think is going to happen in the in the coming days? I mean, I think that it's anyone's guess, right? I mean, we have, I mean, you, you talk about Trump getting second chances. He's had three years of chances as president, many more, you know, in terms of, of harassing people on Twitter before his presidency. Um, you know, so it's, it's anyone's guess in terms of how Twitter uh, continues to either modify, you know, edit or modify his tweets. Um, he's certainly not going to stand down from the things that he's been doing for many years on this platform. It's just not his personality. That being said, Twitter has um, opened Pandora's box in terms of um, using the editorial discretion that they do have as a private publisher. Um, and now that they have taken action against Trump once, twice, three times, um, every single time that Trump or another world leader 
or another politician um, tweet something that is out is you know misinformation or misleading or um, dangerous, uh, they are now being held up against their own example, and that is something that we're in kind of uncharted waters here. And that's really what Mark Zuckerberg over at Facebook is saying. I don't want any part of. Um, <laughs> And they have certainly had their own um, catastrophes in terms of moderating editorial and user-generated content over the years, you know. Um, But right now, they don't want any part of this. Um, The same statements have been posted to uh, Facebook without the same same warnings. So, you know, I think we have to wait to see what happens. It's It's a brave new world out there. And AJ, catch us up on, you know, we all know that, that Trump and the, and the news media have had a very contentious relationship, to put it lightly. Um, but it felt like in, in April, he, he kind of stuck his toe in the waters of getting back out there uh, after having a pretty long freeze out of the media, not really talking to them directly, and then started giving these briefings for COVID-19. Uh, how would you describe that that process and, and how that went? Well, look, I mean, in theory, it's a good idea, right? I mean, bringing your public health experts, your Dr. Anthony Fauci, I don't know you know, if you guys remember him. <laughs> um, it, it feels like forever since we've uh, heard or seen him. But you have Dr. Anthony Fauci, you have doc- Dr. Deborah Bur- Burks, excuse me, um, who are up on the podium who are giving daily updates. It's like, okay, great. This is, you know, you're hearing from public health experts each day. You're putting someone, the vice president, who granted is not exactly a public health expert himself, um, but at least he's articulate. Um, You put him in charge of this. You have some sort of organization. You have, you're getting information out to people on a daily basis with at least two experts. Um, And then very quickly, it turned back into you know, the President Trump show where he would come on, he would sort of air his grievances to start, and then he would shift the stage over to um, his public health experts. So um, it was, it kind of became, it went from sort of a nice idea in theory to um, Trump being Trump. And you had CNN and MSNBC in particular who became under pressure from um, social media, from their viewers as to how long to stick with these briefings. Do you take them in their entirety? Do you fact check them? Do you not take them at all? How do you do this? You, you know, you want to make sure your viewers get um, important information from the experts, but you also don't want to hear BS, frankly. Um, So it's a juggling act. So um, what the network started to do is to go back and forth was, you know, when Dr. Fauci would speak, they would cover that when Vice President Pence or even Trump would speak, they would go back to studio coverage and fact check. Um, so it kind of it started out as a nice idea and ended up um, not quite as nice. And now and now they have um, Kelly McEnany, who was a. Former CNN commentator, um, she's conservative, obviously, and now Trump has brought her on as his press secretary. They are back to doing daily briefings, and she is back, um, and she is a bulldog. She is there for one purpose, quite frankly, um, and that's to um, 
you know, throw jabs at the press a little bit. She's not delivering particularly pertinent information a lot of the time. Um, a lot of it is just her going back and forth at the press, and it's unfortunate, but a lot of it is what we've we've come to expect from these guys. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's, again, as I said, it's it started off as maybe a nice idea. People were optimistic. Okay, we're going to have public experts giving us important information on a daily basis about what this public health emergency means to you, to your loved ones, to the country in its entirety. And it sort of devolved into this, um, you know, fest of Trump going after his um, his enemies. And it was sort of unfortunate. But oh, well, well, it did it did create quite a few uh, really impressive uh, lip sync demonstrations on TikTok, though. Mm -hmm. uh, some okay. of the people who were able to take these very long uh kind of rambling monologues and turn them into uh, performances. And right. I have to I have to say, like, it's it's both funny, but also pretty impressive. And it was neat uh, seeing TikTok become a place uh, because I, I've seen a lot of people saying, oh, I like TikTok because it's it's not political. And I'm like, are we looking at the same app? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's sort of interesting. Um, what, one of the women and perhaps the most prominent one who is known for the lip syncing, um, was on the last word with Lawrence O'Donnell. I want to, <clears throat> I want to say either two nights ago, or, or or maybe she was preempted due to um, due to coverage of Minneapolis. Point being, she was supposed to be on um, the last word with Lawrence O'Donnell, which is MSNBC's 10 p.m. program. So that just sort of goes to show that TikTok has really entered the mainstream, where you're now seeing TikTok personalities show up on cable news programs at draw a couple million viewers a night. So her work isn't going unnoticed, apparently. <laughs> well, great. Well, thank you all so much. Uh, we, we packed a lot in. Like I said, we could keep going for a long time. But the good news is, if you're into these topics and you want to know more, uh, this is literally what we do all day. So uh, check out uh, adweek.com. Uh, definitely, if you have not already become a uh, Adweek Pro member so that you can get unlimited access, uh, you should definitely uh, consider doing that. Um, and uh, make sure uh, to get out there and check out everything that AJ Katz is writing on TV News or and elsewhere on Adweek. Uh, and then also Scott Nover is covering platforms for us. And Jess Ferris running all of our social channels, among many other things. Uh, and uh, speaking of TikTok, check out Adweek's TikTok, which is now... Jess, do you want to share the good news about the Adweek TikTok account? Oh, yeah. We are officially verified. Ooh. Checkmark. Mm -hmm. And uh, in addition, our name is no longer these mildly sketchy Adweek mag. Uh, we are just straight up Adweek, right? That's correct. So follow us there. You will uh, get uh, such fine content as Jess, who happens to be an etymology expert, um, and uh, recently shared the history of some of the most uh, kind of core words in advertising. And I really hope we can lure you back uh, to do that many more times. I plan on it. Sweet. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Um, and, uh, and thanks to each of you for coming on the show. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, AJ. Thanks for thank having you. me. Yep. Thank you, David. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by me and edited by Lane McGibney. Uh, if you've not already, please uh, subscribe uh, at uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can drop us an email anytime at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. 
Uh, I'm David Greiner for Adweek, and we will be back next week. Are you an Adweek Pro member? If so, we hope you've been enjoying unlimited access to Adweek content, including special reports on the future of marketing's hottest categories. If you're not an Adweek Pro member, now's the perfect time to join. We've got a ton of amazing member-only events and resources on the way, and you won't want to miss them. Your employer might even be interested in covering the cost of your membership. Visit adweek.com slash offer to find our current special offer for new Adweek Pro members. That's adweek.com slash offer.